trust that you had a great Christmas and you're looking forward to a great New Year. And um, as already been stated, we have uh, quite a celebration coming up here on New Year's Eve. We're going to have a lot of fun and uh, going to have communion. It's going to be a great time. Oh, that's right. We have uh, people who are listening to us live on the radio all over America right now. Would you please welcome our radio audience? You know, we'd love to take everyone that tells us something at face value, that their words mean exactly what they tell us. But sometimes what people say to us, claim to be, can be a cover-up. There was a, uh, a man named Jorge Rodriguez. He was a notorious Mexican bandit who used to plague the people of Texas by going over the border robbing them, robbing their banks. And though they tried to get him, he would quickly slip back over into his mountain hideaway in Mexico. This kept going on, and the people of Texas got tired of it. So they hired a a famous investigator, undercover agent, to go get Jorge Rodriguez. He pinpointed the area of Mexico where he thought he was hiding out at that moment, went over the border found a town, walked into a saloon, and there in the corner was Jorge Rodriguez. And so the officer said in English loudly, Aha! I found you! Pulled out his gun and he said, You tell me where you've hidden all of our money or I'm going to blow you away. Just then, another man in the bar walked up to him and introduced himself as Juan Garcia. He said, Excuse me, senor, but... Jorge cannot understand a word of English. He did not understand a single word you just said. Would you like me to translate for you? The man said, sure. You tell Jorge Rodriguez that he better tell me where that money is or I'm going to kill him. So the man spoke to Jorge in Spanish, told him the message. Jorge quickly opened his eyes, jabbered something in Spanish, moved his arms, pointed in some direction and told the man, the interpreter, in Spanish, that if he would take this agent a mile south of town to an abandoned well, climb down to the bottom of the well, go to the third tier of bricks up, he would find a loose brick, he could take it out, and there behind that brick was $3 million in gold. The friendly interpreter turned to the agent and said, I am sorry, senor. Jorge says he cannot remember where he hid the money. I guess you have to shoot him. (laughs) Now the guy posed as being a very helpful, law-abiding citizen, but in reality, he was at least as bad, if not worse, being a hypocrite than even Jorge. Jesus Christ knew the propensity of human beings to make certain claims about themselves and not have those claims be authentic ones. It's easy to say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe in Him. I follow Him. I love Him. But Jesus gives an analogy in this upper room discourse in chapter 15 about two types of believers represented by two types of branches in a vineyard. Those that are true and those that are false. Let's read the text 
beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. It was a very common analogy because the people of of Judah, the people of Israel, were a lot of them farmers. In fact, still to this day, there are terraced hillsides filled with, with grapes that grow. In fact, grapes are still a symbol of the nation of Israel. The Ministry of Tourism shows a picture of Joshua and Caleb suspended between them as a large cluster of grapes, symbolic of the nation. Now, these words were spoken after the supper. In fact, they were getting up and either out of the room or on their way already to the Garden of Gethsemane. For look at the last verse of chapter 14, the last sentence, Jesus says, Arise, let us go from here. So probably this was spoken either as they're getting up or they're walking from the upper city of Jerusalem down through the Kidron Valley, which probably had grapes growing all over the place, private vineyards outside the city. Or it could be that as they walked from the upper city to the lower city and they looked out at the temple complex, they noticed one of the gates to the temple. History tells us that the gate to the holy place was a tourist attraction. It was handcrafted out of Corinthian bronze and engraved inside of that was a golden vine with clustered grapes that depicted the nation of Israel. And everybody knew, every Jewish person knew that the vineyard was a symbol of the nation of Israel. You may recall back in Isaiah chapter 5, it begins... Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved, the Lord, had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. And he dug it out and removed the stones and he he planted a choice vine within it. And he put a, a wine press in it and a tower. And he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes Hear, O men of Israel and inhabitants of Jerusalem, what more could have been done to my vineyard than what I have already done? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And that little paragraph concludes by saying, For the people of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Judah are the vineyard of the Lord. So that was the common belief, that was the common system of belief that Israel was the vineyard of God. The disciples believed that as well. But they relied on, they rested on the fact that 
nothing's going to move them. They're God's vineyard. Nothing's going to pluck them up. But they were fruitless. In contrast to that, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Now, typically, this is the time of year when we evaluate our lives. It's the end of the year. We think about a new year, and Americans are famous for making resolutions. Certain things we, we're going to swear off, we're going to stop doing. We're not going to eat as much this year. Um, we're not going to stay up so late and maybe not watch as much television. We're not going to lose our temper as much, kick the dog like we have this year. We're, we're going to swear off some of these things. And on the other hand, we're going to pick up a few good habits, going to join the gym, exercise a little more, smile a little more perhaps, lighten up would be good. But what I'd like us to do tonight is go a little bit deeper, more foundational, and evaluate our relationship truly with Jesus Christ. Lest we become like that Christmas tree that's still at home in so many of our houses. It's so decorated on the outside, but feel it. It's dead. It's withering. It's all a facade. Tonight we want to look at the description of a true disciple and the demonstration of a true disciple. And we're not going to make it through all of the demonstrations that are in your outline. We'll save that for a subsequent study, but at least we'll make it through part of it. Look at the first five verses a little more carefully. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You, speaking to the disciples, Judas had left. He's one of the fruitless ones. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. We have a description of a true disciple in those verses. A true disciple, a genuine follower of Christ, is both connected to him and cared for by the Father. That is the analogy that Jesus gives with the vineyard. We're connected through Jesus Christ and we're cared for by the Father. You are a branch. You are a twig. You are a little piece of wood in this analogy. In and of itself, it's not that impressive. It's not that significant. Not that attractive. Not that important. In fact, the wood of the vine was useless the only thing they did with it is use it for kindling wood, burn brush fires in the Kidron Valley with it. They didn't build anything with it. It really wasn't a strong wood. It was good for nothing but firewood unless it was connected. The branch connected to the vine. When the branch is connected to the vine, planted in good soil, being nourished, then the branch is productive, nourishing. Life-giving. Now Jesus says, and notice, I am the true vine. Alethanos was the Greek word for true. It means the genuine, the enduring one, the perfect one, the ever-fruitful one. Israel was fruitful in the past, sometimes, sometimes not. I am the ever-fruitful, perfect vine. In other words, your life, like a branch, 
not that attractive, not that important, not that great by itself. When you are connected to Christ, your life takes on real significance, real importance, real productivity. You abide. I think simply Jesus is saying that, first of all, He is our connection to the Father. If you want to get connected to the vine dresser, the farmer who owns the vineyard, if you want a relationship at all with the Father, your connection must be through Jesus Christ. He is simply then reiterating what he already said back in chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you want to be connected to God, the only true connection is made through Jesus Christ. He's the only means. He's the only way to get to God. It's the connection with Him. Now a few things about this connection. It can't merely be a ritualistic connection. Look at verse 6. It has to be a true connection to the true vine that produces true fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, the Jews, for the most part, believed that they could be connected to God by their rituals. As long as they kept the ceremonies, as long as they performed their almsgiving, as long as they ate kosher food or stayed away from unkosher food, washed their hands a certain way, washed their dishes a certain way, that they were saved. And so they trusted in the priests at the temple to be mediators between them and God. The connection between them and God was the priesthood. They trusted in the animal sacrifices being maintained in the temple for their righteousness. They trusted that that would be their connection. But Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and said, There's one God and one mediator, one connection, one go-between between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So you cannot reach God and be saved through rituals, be it baptism or circumcision or any other outward means of being right with God. You can't make a ritualistic connection, period. You remember John the Baptist, he was a, a, um, a no-nonsense kind of a preacher. He was down at the Jordan River and he was baptizing people. And a lot of the Jewish people, the priests, those in the covenant of Israel, came down to be baptized and John the Baptist did not preach a very seeker-sensitive message to him. He said, Hey, you brood of snakes! Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? In other words, you think you can come down to the Jordan River and get baptized and that's it? That's enough for salvation? You can't do that. There was no salvation in baptism then and there's none in it now. You can't make a ritualistic connection and expect to be saved. Look at Paul the Apostle. Great example. He talked about his past life and he said, okay, let's talk about ritual. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and I kept all of the laws. In fact, when it comes to righteousness that comes through the law, I was blameless, perfect. But then he said, all of that stuff I counted as manure. That's the word he used, dung, literally. Rubbish in the New King James, to be polite. It's all rubbish. It's all dung. I can't be saved through ritual. 
You can't connect with God. And yet, churches are filled, absolutely filled, with people like this who are going through all of the motions, be it baptism or communion or confirmation or any other sacerdotal, ceremonial means to get to God to be saved. That's religion. That's religion. And a picture of religion, a good picture of it, is is a temple that is in China, atop one of the most famous peaks in China, known as Mount Taishan. There's a temple up at the top. To get to it, you must climb 7,000 steps through a lower gate, a middle gate, and then you get up to one of the most beautiful buildings in all of China called the Temple of the Azure Cloud. Once you get there, panting and puffing, after 7,000 steps, you then make a sacrifice, perform a ceremony. All of those steps and sacrifices are thought to make you right with God. God will grant you favor. But 7,000 steps won't be any more than one step. You can't make the connection simply ritualistically. Not only that, but you cannot reach God or make this connection genetically. Genetically. Now listen carefully. That's what this whole analogy was about. The whole analogy of Jesus talking about a vineyard and branches and the vine was because in the mind of the Jew, they thought, I am the vineyard of God. I've been planted in this land. I'm never going to be rooted out. It's just part of the process. God made promises to Abraham and David, and I'm the offspring. It's genetic. Go back to uh, Luke for just a minute. I want you to take a look at something. Look at something in Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus gives a parable about a vineyard. The details are slightly different, but the gist is the same. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. Then he began to tell the people in this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him and they treated him shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third. They wounded him and they cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But the vine dressers saw him and reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that our inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those vine dressers, probably predicting the the, uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's probably what he's hinting at. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. It was a hostile reaction because they knew that the vineyard meant Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. And so they said, oh no, certainly not. Why? Because they trusted in their ancestry that that was good enough to make this connection. Once again, John the Baptist, same scene down at the Jordan River, When the Pharisees came down and other Jewish people to be baptized, and John the Baptist said, Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? He said this, Do not think 
to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You see, they thought that salvation got passed down from Abraham and David and and the prophets, and they were the offspring of the prophets. It was ancestral. It was genetic. And John the Baptist says, you know, you're trusting that Abraham is your father. It's no big deal because God could, if He wanted to, make out of these stones genetically people who are Jewish. Imagine how shocked they were in John chapter 8 when they boasted to Jesus, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Now that would be a shock. What they're saying is we are trusting Abraham as our father that genetically, because we're Jewish, salvation is passed down. Jesus says, genetically, Abraham may be your father, but spiritually the devil is. Or how about Luke chapter 16 when Jesus gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus and they both die and Jesus said, the rich man in hell cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now wait a minute. What's he doing in hell? He's Jewish. The obvious answer is heritage, genetics, ancestry doesn't save So it's not rituals, it's not ancestry, that's not the connection that is required. The connection that is required then is an individual, personal connection that results in new life. An individual, personal connection that results in new life. That's the the point of this passage. The branch connected intimately to the vine, that's what produces fruit. And eight times, Jesus uses a word that spells this out. It's the word abide, meno. Eight times, abide, abide in me and my words in you. You cannot be severed personally from Christ and then in its place put religion or rituals or ancestry. Well, you know, my parents were Christian and my grandparents were Christian. Great. What about you? It has to be personal. The connection is made by the new birth, John chapter 3, born again. It comes by true repentance, turning from sin, turning to Christ, true faith. If you have true repentance and true faith, you have a true disciple. That's how the connection is made. Now the analogy itself of a branch connected to a vine implies intimacy, closeness. They have to be connected. If they're not connected, they wither, Jesus said. So it has to be an intimate, close, personal relationship. Not formality, not distance. You know, a branch could never turn to the vine and say, Well, you know, vine, I like you and I respect you, but I like to keep a little distance between us. I don't want to go overboard in this relationship and get too fanatical as a branch. So I'll just visit you once a week on Sunday. And some people love to maintain a distance with, they call him the good Lord. It's always a giveaway. Not my Lord, my Savior, my Jesus, but the good Lord up there in the sky. Why the distance? It has to be personal. It has to be intimate. In fact, 
one translation that's a very literal Greek translation by Kenneth Weiss translates verse 4. Maintain a living communion with me and I with you. There's the definition. Maintain a living communion with me and I with you. Keith Miller wrote these words. It has never ceased to amaze me that we Christians have developed a kind of selective vision which allows us to be deeply and sincerely involved in worship and church activities and yet almost totally pagan in the day-in and day-out guts of our business lives and never realize it. But when you abide in Christ, there's a real relationship of life and love. Look at verse 9. Skip ahead. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. There's a real, personal, intimate, life-giving love relationship of the branch to the vine. That's a true disciple. I've always loved the story of the, of the politician and orator, Williams Jennings Bryan. He uh, ran for Congress and he won. He ran for president three times, lost all three times. But he was in love with his wife. He was also a defender of the Christian faith. And he was having his picture painted one time by a portrait painter. And uh, the uh, painter noticed that he had long hair, that you could see it under his hat, and we took his hat off, it just sort of hung down. And so the painter said, you know, why, why do you have long hair? Just, just curious. It doesn't seem to fit the times. And Brian said, well, there's really romance connected with my hair. You see, when I first courted Mrs. Brian before we married, she never liked the way my ears stuck out. She always said, you know, your ears stick out like cab doors, and if you, if, if you could just grow your hair out. And so he did. And the painter said, but that was so many years ago. Why don't you just cut it now? And he said, because the romance is still going on. Still loved her and still gave that token to her. How often we begin with Christ so intimately, such a loving fashion like the church at Ephesus but could it be said of us, you have left your first love? Abide is close, it's intimate. Not only that, but a connected disciple stays connected. Stays connected. In fact, the fact that he stays in Christ, connected to Christ, proves that he's a genuine disciple. Again in verse 6, If anyone does not abide, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. The word abide, meno, literally means to remain. There's a consistency there. True disciples stay disciples. They don't move on to something better. Oh yeah, I was a close follower of Christ many years ago. John writes these words in 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. True disciples stay disciples. They abide. They remain. There's a consistency over time. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him in John chapter 8, If you abide in my word, that is, keep on obeying me and my teachings, you are my disciples indeed. There's a thought then of permanence here. What if you were to go to the nursery and you bought some tree for your front yard? You thought, this is a really cool tree. It's going to look good. You plant it in your front yard, and after a couple of weeks, you look at it and you go, I don't like it there. 
So two weeks later, you dig it up, put it on the side of your house. You go, yeah, that's better. Someone walks by and says, you know, that that tree kind of looks geeky sitting out there on the side of your house. There's no proportion to it. You, You ought to just move it. And so a month later, you decide, I'll move it to my backyard. Now, if you keep doing that to that tree, it's going to go into shock. You're going to have to call the plant ambulance or something. It's meant to be permanently rooted for that thing to be able to grow. A true disciple remains a disciple. So he's connected. That's the first part of the definition. He's connected. Second, he's cared for by the Father. Connected to Christ, connected to the vine, and cared for by the Father. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the caretaker, vine dresser, grape farmer, owner and maintainer of the vineyard. Look in verse 2. It says, He prunes those vines and those branches. Verse 8, My Father is glorified. In other words, it's a picture of God the Father as the caregiver of the vineyard who would walk through, think of the analogy, walk through the vineyard taking great pride and joy in His grapes with great care. He doesn't do it because he has to. He doesn't do it because it's his duty. He loves those branches, cares that they bear fruit. I don't know if you know a real gardener, but you know, real gardeners really like to garden. doesn't matter what the weather's like. They love it. They like it and their hands dirty. You know, you give them a shovel for Christmas, they go nuts. Yes! This is that new shovel, that titanium-bladed shovel. Oh, that's awesome! They know the lingo, they got the boots, everything. Now, I am not a good gardener. I've tried it a couple times. We've tried to grow things, and I think I really have a brown thumb. I will kill whatever plant I try to grow. Unless it's just, you just maintains by itself, it's okay. So we kind of uh, do this thing now called an English garden. English garden is a fancy term for you can't tell if it's a real plant or a weed. It just sort of grows and you go... It's an English garden. looks good. (laughs) But the, the staggering truth here is that God Almighty, the Creator, is the vine dresser. He cares for you meticulously. He looks over you and is so concerned and cares for your life on a personal level. That's a staggering truth because there's a lot of people who are Christians. And sometimes we wonder, especially at communion service, we're all praying in little groups. We think, you know, there's a lot of noise going on right now. God is hearing all of that? He can care for all of us individually? There's so many people. But Paul said to Timothy, God knows those who are His. He knows those who are His. And He cares for you personally. It's a great truth. I was reading a little... uh, science trivia on, on a bird, an Arctic bird. Uh, it's up in the, the Arctic sea coast in the, in the rocky crags called a guillemot. And guillemots congregate by the hundreds and hundreds. And the female guillemots all lay their eggs in a long row. Hundreds of these females lay their eggs. Now, they all look alike. Yet, the mothers know exactly which eggs are hers. Studies have shown that she knows her eggs so well that if you were to remove one and put it at a long distance away, she would find it. She knows who are his. 
hers. And God knows those who are His. Jesus said concerning planting, He said, Every plant that is not planted, that my Father has not planted, will be uprooted, implying that those that are His own, He cares for. So that is the definition of a true disciple. Connected to the vine, cared for by the Father. Now we're going to look at the demonstration of a true disciple. There are four things that demonstrate a true disciple. We can only get through one of them tonight. The next three we'll save for the next time. But if you're a true disciple, if you're a real Christian, if you're an authentic branch, you can expect to see four things. You should expect to be fruitful, verse 2, verse 5. You should expect to get pruned by God. We'll explain that next time. You should expect to have your prayers answered, verse 7, and you should expect joy, verse 11. Look at the first one. You should expect to be fruitful, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. You have to stay connected. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So, an authentic, true branch, disciple, follower, is going to be fruitful. Fruit is noticeable on a tree. It proves the identity. How can you tell a, a pumpkin vine from a grapevine? By the fruit, by what grows on it. Trees and plants don't grow signs that say, Hi, this is an apple tree. This is a pear tree. This is a pumpkin vine. This is a grapevine. You tell it by the fruit. It's noticeable. Vines have two kinds of branches. Productive and non-productive. Those that produce fruit, those that do not produce fruit. The lack of fruit shows that genuine salvation never took place because there's no life unless you're connected to the vine. If you're connected to the vine, Jesus said you will have fruit. Now I like this because it shows me I never have to guess a true believer. Never have to guess. It's never something like, well, yeah, I think he is a believer way deep down inside. If you dig way deep down there, I think he loves God. The whole point is you never have to dig deep down. It's evident on the outside. He bears fruit. You will know them by their fruit, Jesus said. You don't have to dig. How do you tell an apple tree? Do you dig deep down into the trunk of the apple tree? You look on the apple tree. Now, Jesus did say that not everyone's output of fruit is the same, right? He said some will bear forth fruit 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But they're going to have something. There's going to be some indication, some outward visible growth if they're connected to Him at all. And there's even a, a, a progression here. Notice in verse 2, He speaks of fruit. Then in the same sentence, more fruit. And then in verse 5 and verse 8, much fruit. So you have fruit, more fruit, much fruit. There's a progression of fruitfulness in that life. Now the Bible speaks of several different kinds of fruit. 
and I'm just going to quickly go through them, that indicate you're a real branch. Number one, people won to Christ is considered fruit in the Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, I often plan to come to you that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. So people won to Christ is part of that fruit. Number two, holy living is fruit. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Giving of your resources is considered fruit. In Romans 15, Paul writes, of the contribution to the saints, and he calls it this fruit. This fruit. Four, and finally, praise, worship. Praise from your lips is considered fruit. Hebrews 13, verse 15, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now understand this. It's important. A spiritual person is known by fruit. These things are some of them. Not gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Remember the Corinthian church, Paul writes to them and says, you come behind in no spiritual gift, but you're all carnal, he says. Twice he called them that. Three times, actually. John Stott writes, The Christian should resemble a fruit tree, not a Christmas tree. For the gaudy decorations of a Christmas tree are only tied on, whereas fruit grows on a fruit tree. It's then the graces, the character, the fruit of the Spirit that demonstrates the connection. Something else about being fruitful, it's natural. You know, when branches are connected to the, to the root, or in this case, the branches to the vine, and it's down into the soil where the roots are, there's this flow of natural life. There's not wax fruit or plastic fruit on the branches, but real stuff. And it's very natural. Have you ever seen a fruit tree sweat it out? Strive to produce. There's that apple tree out there going, Hard work I did today. No, you didn't do anything. Branch, you just hung in there. That's all you did. And that's really how it is spiritually. When we're closely connected to Christ and we love Him, and we talk to Him, and we listen to Him, and we obey Him, the natural result is fruit. So it's noticeable. Fruit is natural. And finally, it is nourishing. What's the purpose of a fruit tree anyway? What's the purpose of a vineyard? To produce fruit for what? For people to eat, to be blessed, to be nourished by. Grapes don't produce grapes for the vine, for the branches, for the vine dresser, as much as for other people. It's to bless other people. And I think the point is this. If there's the life of God in you, there will then be the life of God through you, touching others. Remember Jacob? He got his kids together on his deathbed. And he turns to Joseph and he says, Joseph is a fruitful branch a fruitful branch planted by the wells of water whose branches go over the wall. He is so fruitful, he is constantly being nourished that his branches go over the wall and bless the people on the other side. That's the idea. When I lived in Huntington Beach, my neighbor had a lemon tree. 
And I loved it because it was right on the border. It was on his side of the fence, but the branches, a lot of half of them went over into my yard, and I took them all the time and ate them. That was the law. You could do that. As long as they're on my side, I can have them all. And I did. <laughs> Very fruitful. Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's the point. You come to Christ and you get connected and you'll be refreshed. The life will be in you, but the life will flow from you and bless others. So what is a true disciple? A true disciple is somebody who's connected to Jesus Christ. He comes to God through Jesus Christ alone. And it's not a ritualistic connection. It's not a genetic connection. It's a personal, close, intimate connection by faith that includes repentance and true faith. And when that happens, there's going to be fruit. It'll be noticeable. It might be 30-fold, but it'll be noticeable. It'll be natural. Don't have to strive. Just hangs in there close to Jesus Christ, feeding off the nourishment, and He'll bless or she will bless others. It will be nourishing. One of my favorite stops to go to in this town is the Albuquerque Aquarium. And the, the most famous exhibit in the Albuquerque Aquarium is the shark tank. And the shark tank is cool. It's a tunnel, you know. You, you walk into it, and it's over you and around you. I have been told that sharks are very interesting creatures in that they grow according to the size of their environment. If you take a shark, a baby shark, and put it in a very confined space... It can be six inches long, yet a fully mature shark. It's cute. You're not really worried about it. It's just a cute little six-inch but fully mature shark. Yet if you take that six-inch shark and put it in the ocean, a larger arena, a larger environment, it will grow to its normal eight-foot length. You know, I have met so many cute six-inch Christians swimming around in puddles, making a big deal of the puddle. This is a pretty cool puddle. My challenge to us this year is to look for a bigger environment to grow in, a bigger area to let our fruit go over the wall and bless other people, that our world will get bigger in that sense and will reach out. Heavenly Father, we have considered a part of a very important discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples, probably walking along a road from one part of Jerusalem to the very place he would be betrayed, giving to them the definition of a true follower, a true disciple, so that they wouldn't have to guess. One connected, one cared for, and one that is fruitful, demonstrates that he or she is a truly connected branch by the fruit that is produced. It's so noticeable. It's so natural. And it's so effective and such a great advertisement to the unbeliever. I pray that fruit would be in our lives, Lord, and that if we're swimming around a puddle, we would look for a, an ocean of opportunity this coming year. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Amen. Let's stand.